You're listening to the Satanic Temple Ministries Religious Services. In each service, ministers of Satan discuss a single topic related to Satanic religious life. Services are held twice a week on Tuesday and Saturday. For more information, go to satanicministry.com. I'm Minister Citri Tommy Belusiva. Today is the 5th of November, and our topic for today is baptized by fire, Lucifer and Guy Fawkes as rebellious symbols. So there's a content warning for today. So terrorism, historical violence, and political talk are our triggers. Um, So with that out the way, um, I've recorded a special video for you all today of the invocation and the opening presentation. Let us stand now and bowed and unfettered by arcane doctrines born of fearful minds in darkened times. Let us embrace the Luciferian impulse to eat of the tree of knowledge and dissipate our blissful and comforting delusions of old. Let us demand that individuals be judged for their concrete actions, not for their fertility or arbitrary social norms and illusionary categorizations. Let us reason our, our solutions with agnosticism in all things, holding fast only that which is demonstrably true. Let us stand firm against any and all arbitrary authority that threatens the personal sovereignty of one or all. That which will not bend must break, and that which will be destroyed by the truth should never be spared its demise. It is done. Hail Satan. concept. Obviously we grow into it. It's something we die with. It's something we are born with. But what if an icon was so powerful that it transcended time itself? In this service we explore the meaning of rebellion with two figures and see how these figures have caused real change in recent times. Our first symbol is that of Lucifer. As Satanists we see Lucifer as a symbol of strength as a symbol of someone who stands up for minority, something which is not evil, but just the other. Whereas Christians would see this symbol as evil incarnate. In the 1600s, Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Parliament. He did this in an act of rebellion against what was happening at the time in Britain. Catholics were being burnt at the stake but also witches were being burnt at the stake. King James I, writer and author of the book Demonology, burnt innocent people by the hundreds. And what spawned this was the Pendle witch trials. When these witches were arrested, they were directly asked if they were in cahoots with Guy Fawkes himself, as well as Satan. In recent times, the figure or face of Guy Fawkes has been used as a symbol of rebellion based off of the film V for Vendetta, which was actually written by Alan Moore, a huge figure in the occult. 
most notable that activism group Anonymous have used this sign as a nod to the Viva Vendetta film, as the portrayal of the protagonist is one of rebellion. What ties our symbols together mostly is the fact that John Milton, the author of Paradise Lost, actually wrote Quintim Nombres, known as On the 5th of November in 1626. Paradise Lost has also been known to be a piece about climate change. So the fact that all of these ties are put together, to me, says everything about Lucifer and Guy Fawkes being transcended in time as symbols of rebellion. Oh, good stuff. So we're going to go straight into the questions with my uh, lovely panel that I've gathered for us. So the first question is, what attracted you personally to Lucifer? Any hands? Minister Richard, after you. Sorry, I did try to raise my hand there, but I used the wrong emoticon accidentally because I'm blind as a bat. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for that um, that declamation, Tommy. You've definitely upped the fucking bar for everyone else from now on. God, I feel bad for whatever minister is on next weekend. But to answer your question, what attracted me to Lucifer in the first place? Uh, nothing. Nothing, really. When I was first discovering Satanism, I couldn't have given two shits about Lucifer, if I'm being totally honest. Lucifer didn't really mean anything to me. I came into Satanism through through the heavy metal community because, you know, as someone who regularly attended heavy metal concerts and uh, listened to a lot of that kind of music, throwing up the horn, saying Hail Satan and wearing pentagrams was just, was just another Friday or Saturday evening for me, to be honest. And... Um, and then when I discovered that, oh, wait wait a minute, I can now do this and call it my religion? Oh, wait, sheet, son, like, sign me the fuck up. Like, that's what I wanted. And then Lucifer was just kind of part and parcel, you know, to do with that. The more I read into modern-day Satanism and, and you know, discovered the, uh, oh, what was that? Oh, there was a phrase that uh, Viv, I saw Vivian use. I discovered the profundity of romantic Satanism and reading more about it. It... It, it it's it struck a note with me. It resonated with me. So I don't have much more to say on that. In the beginning, nothing attracted me to Lucifer, but now that he's here, we're good buddies. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, thank you for that. That's really cool. Um, I found um, Satanism through music as well. Um, it's just really interesting to see how each different person sort of, um, you know, found this path. Um, so let's see how Darren found this past Minister Darren, after you. Hello. Um, first of all, good morning. Happy time zone to everyone. Um, I might be one of the people that I got into metal music after I started reading about occult things. Um, not, not specifically from the occult. My tastes were developing and changing anyway. Um, but before I ever started listening to metal, I was more into things like hip hop and uh, 60s music. So um, I got into more from the, the literature side of things. 
And the the archetype that TST uses of Lucifer from from that romantic Satanism from Milton's Paradise Lost is um, someone who's eternally questioning things, someone who is not accepting that this is the way things are because this is the way things have to be. Sometimes the way things are is just a coincidence, or the way things have grown. Um, and you know, me being me with my personality, having you know um, lots of traits that lead to me questioning a lot of things. It was that that led me to the, you know this idea of um, not just sitting in your place and accepting that things are the way they are because of the way they have to be. That you can elicit change. That um, there are other options out there, and that even if things are good, you should still be questioning them to make sure they're good for you short term, long term, and for the people around you. Um, so it was that that idea that brought me to it, the, the the questioning things and the continuing to question as a way of personal development and a means of growing um, that, that brought me to it. Yeah, that's really cool. I was actually, I don't know if it's classified as 60s music, but I was listening to Amy Winehouse last night. So <laughs> kind of resonates a little bit. Um, so um we also have Nama Faye. Did you want to tell us how um you got introduced to Lucifer or what attracted you to Lucifer? And I'm mirroring um um what Minister Proctor said. I I wasn't drawn to Lucifer um to, in in my terms of Satanism. Um but I do think he's a useful um figurehead. Um and um, I th my kind of path, I kind of was drawn to Satanism uh, as a teenager. And then during my 20s, I kind of wasn't, it wasn't really at the forefront of my brain uh, during that time. Um, I was being a dirty lap dancer and partying far too hard and uh, not really thinking about shit uh, other than that. Um, and then... But I think quite often being told that you're quite sinful and that everything you do is um, wrong, that you're going to go to hell, you kind of go, well, if I'm going to hell, I might as well make friends with the host and um, you know, be his best mate. Um, and and so kind of, and I think a lot of people who are kind of, kind of um, disenfranchised from normal normal society um kind of turn to to that figurehead because he's kind of like well you you don't have to do all those things you know the party's cool down here and i i prefer the warm to cold anyway so yeah <laughs> i think i need another cup of tea my brain's not working uh properly hopefully i'll warm up in a bit no that was great that was really really great and um no i completely resonated with you know, um, loads of, of, you know, what, what you said, especially even like the, the sort of a uh, lap dancing, sort of like that rebellious sort of um, teenage, like that idea, you know, that's still pretty satanic in itself. So I think it's just a sort of a type of person. Um, there's, I've been told before that, um, well, it was sort of with more um, the, the church of Satan, but I I heard a quote saying that the satanic Bible sort of like reads you or you, you resonate with it. It's like, you're not, you don't, Learn, like really learn as such even though you know the path of satanism is so vast um but with the satanic bible in specific someone said that uh, um it's just basically like you in a in a book so i completely understand that you know 
Um, cool. So we're going to move on to the next question. Um, so Viva Vendetta introduced the iconic V mask. Uh, the Satanic Temple introduced Baphomet, which have both become symbols of activism. What role do symbols and visual representations play in modern movements for change? And how do they connect with historical acts of rebellion? I know that's quite a big question. Um, but yeah, if you could answer best, you know, as you can, then please go ahead. Um, after you, Minister Richard. Well, I'm not sure about TSC introducing Baphomet. Uh, name Baphomet originates from Ensemble Ribmont, I believe, uh, who died in 1099. The image of Baphomet, specifically this one on my T-shirt, that's Eliphas Levy. Uh, don't, don't ask me when, when he was alive, 18-something, 19th century, I think. Anyway, um, but what role do symbols play? Oh, gosh, there, there, there's so many aspects to this, so many, so many different ways. The first role that a symbol or that symbology would play in activism and rebellion is, you know, symbols like flags, logos, uh, icons in general, you know, they help create a sense of unity and there's a word on the tip of my tongue identity in in a movement you know among supporters symbols they often represent shared values and goals you know just really solidifying unity also it, depending on what the symbol is it can be something that harkens back to you know something historical if the current movement has its roots in something historic like a, like an ongoing struggle an ongoing cause uh, just to just to give legitimacy to to whatever the modern movement or struggle is, uh, to whatever it might have been in the past. Uh, like, for example, there's a symbol that's often used, uh, being from Ireland, I'm going to give an Irish perspective, uh, a symbol that's used for our governments is that of a harp. Uh, before Irish independence, the harp was used uh, as a symbol of Ireland, um, mainly because it's based on the harp of Brian Baru, uh, the harp. The very harp today can now be seen in Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, Brian Brew being an old, old chieftain who died in 1014, I believe, Battle of Clontarf. Any Irish people watching, uh, feel free to correct me. I could be wrong on that. But but it, it, it's the call back to Iron, to, to, Iron, to, to Brian Brew, and it now gave, uh, they felt it gave a sense of legitimacy during, you know, the Irish uh, struggle for independence uh, over the last 700 years. So, um yeah, that'll be my perspective on it. Yeah, no, that's so cool. I didn't know that it was in the um, in the Trinity College. So next time I'm in Ireland, I'm definitely going to go and look at that. Yeah, I think my wording of the uh, the question, I probably meant um, uh, TST introducing Baphomet as a symbol of um, activism, I guess, um, or popularizing is uh, maybe the correct term. Um, so yeah, well, moving on. Um, we have Minister Darren. Um, please go ahead. So um, this question is is a good one because oftentimes symbols of um, movements and rebellions aren't chosen. They, they, they kind of become things themselves. Um, you know, um, I, I know the name of uh, of the monk that set himself on fire. I'm not going to butcher the pronunciation, but, you know, that became a big symbol of rebellion as well. It became even more famous by being on the cover of Rage Against the Machine album. Um, 
which they were using as well to further their sort of, you know, political rebellion. Um, everyone remembers the unnamed student in Tiananmen Square standing up against the, the, the Chinese military tanks rolling in. That was used as a symbol by some people recently in, in Hong Kong I guess, as well with their, you know, own rebellions. Um, things like, you know, Che Guevara's face has became a symbol of rebellion. And all of these symbols have good and bad things attached to them. You know, it all, it all depends who you ask. Um but I mean, if you go back through through various times in history as well, going back as far as possible, symbols have always been used um, as as signs of rebellion because it's it's nice to have a way to identify your group, to identify your tribe, right? Much like many people in, in TST will wear a t-shirt with Baphomet on it, or will wear something with six six six, or the the the, the Leviathan uh, Leviathan cross, silver cross that I have, you know, here in my hand. Um, these are all identifying things that we use to identify our own tribe as well. And going, you know, back through history, things like flags for nations as well were often used in in times of rebellions. You know, so this this idea that using um, symbols as part of our our rebellion, part of our culture, in a way to show which group we belong to and and where our line in the sand is, for want of a better term, is something that's that's been done throughout human history. You know, if you go back far enough, um, you you have things like with, with, you know, the ancient sort of Middle American tribes as well at the time would dress in specific ways to evoke specific imagery and specific fears in their enemies. Um, So symbology has always been used in in signs of rebellion. and but I, I think it's partly signs of rebellion, but it's also more to identify the people that you are with in that rebellion. It's um yeah, it, it, you know, things like that help breed um help breed a sense of identity, help bring a group together. You know, anonymous is per definition a faceless movement. So they use a mask that has very little, you know, emotion and, and face faceless um human features to it. And anyone doing anything online with that mask is also automatically assumed to be a part of this. We we look at it and we know they're part of Anonymous. We know what they stand for um, without them having to tell us every time. Um, that's why imagery is is so powerful. You know, you see one thing and you think, hey, I know, I know where this person's coming from. So I, I love the fact that we we use it in TST as well. No, totally. I I couldn't agree more. It definitely develops a um a sort of identity. Um, and you know, symbols grow. They can they can change meaning. Um, you know, I mean, I've I've always got sort of like my rings on of you know like Baphomet, my pentagram. You know, like my my citri necklace I wear all the time now. You know, it's these things that sort of represent me. Um, and then from the sort of activism point of view, you're again I couldn't agree more on the fact that. You know, if um, you know, you see someone on a bus, even though it's um not likely, well, I guess the occult's quite popular these days, but you know, if you see someone with a satanic symbol on, you're always like, Oh, I got you. Do you know what I mean? It's it's quite a nice, it's a nice thing. I I really like that. Faye, did you have anything to add to the uh add to that? I haven't got a huge um, amount to add. I agree with everything that's been said uh previously. Um but yeah, it's these kind of symbols that different groups use, it kind of acts as an anchor that people can attach themselves to and also almost like a lighthouse as well. 
in the same way as you said that, you know, sometimes if you're walking down the street or you're interacting with people and you see that they have symbols that that you recognise uh, as part of your your group, then you kind of know that they're, um, they're home. In the same way as um, the pride flag, a lot of people don't understand why the pride flag is so important to our community, uh, and it it lets us know that if we go into that that pub, that pub, that uh, shop, that space, that we're not going to face uh, discrimination or violence, um, and um, and it's the same same all um, um symbols. Um, but it's quite interesting. We were having a conversation the other day with some of the members from um, TSD France, and they were saying that religion is something that's personal, and that in France the culture is not to um, show external uh, symbols of um, um, of faith. So even just wearing a cross is quite a rebellious act. Um, um, so I, I don't know whether uh, Minister Proctor has probably got uh, more insight uh, as he's resident in France uh, in, into that. But I found that very, very fascinating um, because I didn't know that of French culture. So um, I found that conversation very, very enlightening, uh, as, especially in regards to what we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that either. That's um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, uh, Minister Darren, you have your hand up. Yeah, I do want to say one more thing about symbols and and um, you know symbology before we continue. It's also worthwhile um, if you do want to start wearing a specific symbol um, to research it and see where else it may be used, because things like the not equal sign. Um, I've seen used by people in, in, in neurodiverse communities as well to say that we're not all the same. It's also used by a lot of white pride people in America to, to say that, you know, other people aren't equal to whites. Um, things like, you know, very simple things like seeing someone with a tattoo that says 1488. If you do not know what that means, it's just some numbers that might be significant to them. If you know what that means, you pinpoint them right away as, you know, a white supremacist probably usually a nazi to be honest um so you know even if you are wearing symbols one of the the main ones i can think of that has been misappropriated uh and forever changed its meaning is the swastika um you know these are things that uh that you really need to to check beforehand so symbols are great they're very powerful but that also goes against them in many ways so before you buy that you know nice t-shirt that you think is just satanic Check that it's not coming from another satanic group that might have um, different ideas. I'm not going to mention the names because they don't need any more publicity. But, you know, um, do your research before you start wearing something because people will identify you with with that and they might not ask the questions. So, No, absolutely. I completely resonate with that because I've got this symbol, which is the Process Church of the Final Judgment, um, it's nothing to do with it, with the swastika, but it has that similar sort of feel. So I've not put it on any of my clothes yet, just because I don't, I don't even I don't want the association, you know. Um, but yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. And you know, like I was saying, like symbols can completely morph. Um, cool. We'll move on to our next one. Uh, so uh, we have so 
both Satan and Guy Fawkes are associated with fire and chaos, reflecting themes of rebellion. With their fiery connotation, it begs the question, is justice always worth it? And I think where I was going with that was, you know, Satan was obviously sent to hell. Guy Fawkes obviously burnt, you know, at the stake and many other things that was um, unfortunately done to him. Um, yeah, how do you guys sort of feel um, feel about that? Minister Richard Proctor, after you. No one else had their hand up, and I don't have a lot to say on this <clears throat> because I don't know. I just didn't have my coffee when I was when I was contemplating this question. But justice is is such a broad and sweeping term that I don't think there's logically any real answer to this question. Um, I, I, I think I did get what you mean by asking, is justice always worth it? Because it can come with um, pretty bad unforeseen circumstances, but justice can be incredibly subjective as well, which is the which is the one thing I was thinking about when 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 contemplating this question. It's so subjective, given what might have been seen as fair, uh, you know, and just punishment for a crime like theft, for example, uh, in some ancient civilizations. Think of what the punishment for that would mean today. You know, even by today's standards, if you take something like the death penalty, it's doled out as a means of legal justice in a lot of places, but its status as a just punishment hotly debated personally i don't like the death penalty i have a lot of reasons for not liking the death penalty and i'm not in favor of the death penalty but you know there's some people who commit certain crimes and people in favor of the death penalty would say well they don't deserve to breathe the same air as me so this is what i mean by justice is is such a is such a subjective term that i don't i'm not sure how I'm not sure how much more of an answer I'm able to give to that one, unfortunately, as muddled an answer as that was already. No, that's why I sort of put it in there, because, um, you know, I, I wanted to see how, you know, the, the panel would sort of react like, um, you know, justice comes in all sorts of different sort of um, mediums and, um, I, you know, subjects as well. So um, it's just interesting to see, you know, um, you know, your guys' perspective on that. I really appreciate that, that answer. Thank you. Um, Minister Darren, after you. Yeah, so, I mean, um, Minister Proctor kind of hit the nail on the head there. Justice is a very subjective thing. Um, one of my hobbies and the things I've mentioned quite often on here, you know, come from the, the background of etymology. I love knowing where a word comes from. Um, justice actually comes from an old French word with a tiny little sprinkle of Latin on top of it, but it just means like uprightness, equity, vindication, um, applying the law. So you can take justice as meaning people should be treated in an upright manner, uh, equity, you know, with equity and with fairness. The problem is who gets to decide what is just and what is justice? Do we decide based on religion? Do we decide based on local laws? In some countries, it is entirely lawful to kill someone for being homosexual, but most countries would agree that it's not. What is justice in this in this case? You know, do you take it as as um, the base human level justice, where you should not kill another person? Do you take it as the laws of the local country, or do you take it as the laws as relating to people's religion? 
Um, so the idea of justice itself, and you know, the link with fire is that fire purifies things, fire burns things down, fire destroys what once was. Um, but fire also, you know, is needed to nurture life and to bring it. So it kind of completes a cycle by, you know, burning away the old and giving something new the chance to flourish in its place. Um, which is where I would tie them together in my mind, you know, fire and justice. But yeah, just justice as a concept is a, a huge fucking discussion that will cover any and every field of philosophy and religion and everything that you want to throw at this. Um, I personally believe that, you know, just treat people the way that you would like to be treated. And if you apply that, then you're probably gonna, you know, be just in some sense. Um and there's arguments to be made that, you know, if someone wrongs you, should you wrong them back? I, I suppose that depends on the level of how they've wronged you and in what way. Um, I don't think in these situations, especially with things like justice, it's very hard to say that there's absolutes. Because, um, you know, as we know and as we're seeing, there's no absolutes in human suffering. There's no absolutes in, in justice in its application either. Um so, yeah, I, I think that that is a very hard concept. And, you know, it is um, it is one of the tenets that justice, you know, should prevail above laws, where, where the laws are seen to be unjust. Um, and in that way, I would say that the law, if the law is unjust, as in it's unfairly marginalizing a particular group based on a quality that that, that group cannot change. Um, if you're marginalizing someone because of, you know, a physical uh, disability, them being differently able, them having, um, you know, diminished capacity in some way, or them being of a different, you know, color, creed, race, background, social mobility, um, then the law is unjust and justice should prevail over that. But again, it comes back to who is the arbiter of that justice, who, who gets to decide how it should be applied and on what level, so I always think we really need to be careful when we're talking about justice, because especially, you know, if you look at the makeup of this panel, for example, we're all going to be viewing it through a white Western European um, perspective. And that might be seen as just to us, but we cannot say that that is just to everyone else without asking first, you know, um, is is one of the things that, uh, you know, the military-industrial complex has a lot of problems, but a lot of negotiators are taught to learn the local laws and local culture first before you go in and start saying what is and isn't just. How often and how well that is applied is another discussion. Um, but yeah, just be cognizant when you're talking about justice that there are more people and more different backgrounds and things that influence justice. It's It's... Justice isn't uh, a thing in itself. It's a concept made up of all the other little pieces of your society and everything else around about you. I loved that answer. That was so good. Um, you know, as I was sort of thinking about it, I couldn't come to a complete um, answer to the question again. That's why I sort of threw it in the mix, just because, um, it, you know, um, justice is a is a philosophy and like you said it, it comes from you know um all sorts of cultures and you know what society you're in you know there's there's all sorts of different factors which go into it um Faye, i'd like to get your perspective on on that 
I don't have a huge amount to add because uh, so this is my cat she's coming to uh, to join in um I haven't got a huge amount to add because um the previous panelists have kind of said everything that I was thinking um but it is such a massive massive uh subject it's really hard to be kind of succinct and um and kind of uh, try to phrase it so that you don't ramble on for ages. But I think uh, justice from a very kind of a very base level is quite a fundamental human emotion and uh, instinct of that we we want fairness, but primarily we want fairness for ourselves. So and and that happens. Um, across the whole animal kingdom um capuchin monkeys i've said that incorrectly but they, they've done experiments that they kind of they give them reward for a task and then they give another monkey a better reward for the same tasks and that monkey will have absolutely have a meltdown uh, because they want fairness but they want fairness for themselves and i think justice is having a little bit of a conquistive um um uh, opening of wanting fairness for all and for others and for wanting fairness uh for for people who aren't like ourselves um but generally when people are fighting for justice they're generally fighting for justice for themselves um so and that's kind of I don't have the answer that's just kind of my kind of thought about about the subject um and that kind of opens it up to what that actually means I don't have an answer and I'm not saying it's right or wrong I'm just kind of that's what kind of jumps to my mind uh from a kind of a, a base level of how we kind of fiscally feel that kind of what that that word means to us and I'm pronouncing all my words wrong today I'm very tired I'm I'm dysphasic so when I'm tired my words all come out scrambled so if I'm a bit all over the place that's why I apologize you're doing great I love that answer again and um you know you you touched on that like on a really interesting point and I think that's sort of where the the fire connotation comes in with um with those symbols you know like um, you know, it, again, like Darren was saying, you know, it can be destructive, but it can be rebirth, you know. Um, so, no, I, I absolutely adored that answer. Um, Darren, would you like to add some more? Uh, yeah, I just, I, I want to, um, I want to thank Faye as well for bringing up the idea of fairness and justice. Um, fairness is a, another weird concept that is, you know, um, based on your own, um, way of interacting processing with the world um you know for some background behind that i see us all as big computers that take in information process it and put a result based on that um there's various reasons why i think that way um but yeah fairness is one of these things that people always talk about equality we don't need equality because that does not fix problems Equity will fix problems. Equality is me giving you a thousand euros and me giving Jeff Bezos a thousand euros. It means nothing to him. It could mean everything to you. Equity is leveling the playing field and giving everyone what they need based on their needs and um, you know their current needs and situation to get to the same level. And I think I just think in any discussion we can only start talking about fairness once that's actually been done. Once everyone is 
been brought up to a same even playing field where you know you can say oh I, I everyone has access to education in the UK so everyone has that chance but if you're not from a background that, that promotes that then it's not gonna be a chance that you can take so you know much in the way of justice depends on your social status and social class as well in, in many places in the UK um, where I grew up, it was entirely just if someone hit my sister, I could go and, and fuck them up. That was seen as justice where I'm from. Is that just? Probably not. But again, you know, no one would bat an eyelid at it. In fact, if you didn't do it, then you were seen as why you're not doing the right thing, why you're not giving him a kick in. Um, so justice and fairness are, are concepts that are so tied with who you are where you're from and you know the life that you've led the life that you're trying to lead the people who are in it the i i love talking about these things i as you maybe can tell um and you know i i think this has given me an idea or two for a, a couple of services to come as well so thank you very much for bringing that up for no that's awesome i'm really pleased that the discussions you know flowing really well i guess it's all nuance isn't it that's um that's the sort of word that um you know keeps playing up on my mind when i when i go back to uh go back to that subject but leading on from it um this sort of works in quite well in the sense of sort of um like bigger topics at the moment um so um for the fifth question i've got the theme of climate change is mentioned in relation to paradise lost how does the symbolism in these works connect with contemporary environmental concerns um, there was a uh, a, a paper um, written and a, a radio show I was listening to, and um, it was sort of talking about like the satanic mills and the industrial um, sort of vibe that you know the world was going in um, at the time of uh, Milton. Um, how do you, I know it's quite a big topic, um, but yeah, um, to get some feedback would be fantastic whenever you're ready. Or I'll ramble on and you don't want me to do that. <laughs> Great. We've got Minister Richard Prater after you, sir. This, this question threw me for a loop because I really had to go back and look at Paradise Lost because I remember thinking, I don't remember anything about climate change. But it turns out I just wasn't paying attention, really. So Paradise Lost, big poem, John Milton. I mean, anyone who's a Satanist, you're familiar with it, even if you're not a Satanist, if you did, you know, English studies in school, you've you've probably heard of this one. Um, it's been around for a long time. Like, it's not just about or, you know, the, the section in it is of Adam and Eve, it's not just about them getting booted from the Garden of Eden. It's got a lot to say about, uh, you know, the environment, morality as well. You know, when Adam and Eve get kicked out, it's not just like a spiritual letdown. It's like nature itself takes a hit in the poem. The, the weather turns nasty, disasters happen. Everything goes downhill. Uh, quite fucking literally <laughs> as well. This whole idea of, of of nature suffering because of human actions, can, uh, you know, it, it really connects with today's worries about climate change, you know, uh, deforestation, the rising temperature. Nobody needs to be reminded of that existential crisis. Just general waste that humanity's fucking up the planet. 
it's a reminder as well that you know our choices can mess up the environment big time or at least or at least maybe that's just a, a connection that i'm drawing it's like human action we have free will the planet ends up suffering you know i i don't know if that's a coincidence between paradise lost and real earth but you know that's one way of looking at it no totally and i totally agree i think what's fascinating is like we've not quite learned yet <laughs> and it's like you know it's it's these these things that are, that are in repeat and um we seem to do that as humans like throughout history we seem to make the same mistakes even though all of the blueprint is there you know it's like these are big warning signs and yet we can't seem to get to grips with it or the majority i guess <laughs> um minister darren if you'd um if you'd like to go ahead yeah there's there's a lot of books where these themes pop up that you might not expect them um so i i didn't do the same as minister proctor and go back and look through paradise lost again because i have read that book twice in my life and the second time was one time too many um it is a great book that contains many great ideas but my god is it a heavy read um just just because of the way it's written that's not commenting on someone's style or anything you know it's just a heavy book to read it is a, it's a weighty tome um but yeah if you look at something more recent like june for example um you can see in june as well you know there was the the scramble that began at the end of the 1800s where basically the western powers decided to um, make a play for anything they could grab in africa and extract all the resources they could um if you look at the way uh things are in in june you know they seal letters with signets and wax which harkens back to a more colonial time this isn't an advanced civilization but there's still all these little things there to tie you back into colonialism to make you really think about it um, and their world is the way they are because they're entirely reliant on extracting resources from the planet they live on um, and they need them to survive, you know. And I, I think the whole Garden of Eden um, relation as well is they had this paradise and everything they needed to survive and there was one thing they were told not to take from it. But humans being the way they are, being as inquisitive as they are, you will always push that big red button that says danger. You will always... If you tell a child not to do something, you know they're going to think about doing it. It's the way that will always work. So they took that and they lost Eden. They lost their paradise. Um, so, yeah, you can play that forward and draw that to us, extracting oil from the earth that is leading to us losing the paradise that we live in, you know. Um, and there's there's something super fucking cynical in billionaires, you know, making a play for Mars, for the moon, instead of fixing the world we're on. They're just looking for the next one where they can extract things from. Um, one of my, an another good thing you can look at is like um, anime and manga contains a lot of these concepts as well. Uh, one of my favorite sci-fi anime series and manga series is, is Gundam. Um, and in a lot of that, you have space colonists or they're going out to mine asteroids. You know, it, it's um, so this idea that any change we bring about as a society also changes our world as well. You know, um, you see that in, in um, a lot of older literature as well, you know, that one person can affect the world. Well, we're all doing that, right? We're all, you know, um, if we're all taking from a planet and we're giving very little back. 
in in terms of allowing it to heal itself. So I, I don't I don't just see that concept in um Paradise Lost. It's in many, many books if you read between the lines. Um so it, it wasn't strange to me that, you know, that um someone else, someone far smarter than me, found that in a book and pointed it out. And then everyone went, hey, fucking wait a minute. Yeah, totally. And like um I really like just in the the contemporary aspects. I think I mentioned it in the question. Um actually the um the Billie Eilish's um All the Good Girls Go to Hell. And um she's sort of sent down, you know, and lands in like the oil spill and you know, just the 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 whole I I just the whole thing is just so cool. Um, you know, and it's it's got an important message. Um, but you know, I guess we could all do um, you know, better with things um you know like and it's even like a weird one because a, a very close friend of mine is is um looking to go and work on an oil rig you know and that sort of like threw my mind a little bit and I thought oh goodness and then I realized that my ex his dad like owns <laughs> like a lot of um a, well is involved in that industry very heavily so I had to look at my own morals um you know especially in recent years I think when um, you know I was a bit younger, I was um, less educated, and it is about going out and and sort of educating yourself about the the sort of current crisis, and it is scary. It's a scary, scary thing, you know. But um, you know, I think it's like you said, you know, sort of it would be cool to try and focus on our Earth rather than go elsewhere and destroy them and just keep on hopping <laughs> to different planets. <laughs> sort of doesn't make sense, and. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. Like, we should really look after it, you know. Babe, you got anything to add to that? Um, as a, as as before, uh, the the two previous panelists have said quite a lot of what I was going to say or had had thought thought about. Um, I, as you may or may not know, I'm I'm a massive Trekkie, um, and Star Trek touches on this subject time and time again and whenever I kind of think about what's happening with our planet now I kind of think if we were episode of Star Trek how would we be portrayed um you know of us uh knowingly doing all these things that we know are killing the planet and how and and speeding up um the the end um and then that makes me then jump to thinking what what will humanity think of us in 200 years time 300 years time 400 years time um especially with um the fact that a lot of our opinions are now so well documented all this data that they'll have access to of uh, if they look at what what is the news to us now um but they can look it back as being his historical artifacts of what what will they think that was going through our brain you know of, of why why we were we continue to do these things so almost my brain kind of goes to making art about being a, a human in in the future looking back um um at you know at what we're doing right now 
but there's so much so much art is is created around this theme because I think a lot of people who are artistic are quite sensitive people so they're quite in tune to this where the people who tend to be the deniers are tend to be capitalists and um the 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 whip men of of the work machine uh, who are maybe not as don't express themselves in a more kind of an artistic manner. So I think that, that I think that's one of the reasons. Um, now, were you talking about the film June when you were talking about earlier? Because that is, I I love that. I I read the book June. I read the book. Uh, I haven't seen the movies yet, but I think that is very much um, a perfect metaphor for what we're doing to the planet. I don't want to give out any spoilers for people who haven't seen it of why it is <laughs> or haven't read the book. Uh, but yeah, it is a, a perfect metaphor um, for it. Um, and I think it's a very powerful thing. So I'm looking forward to the second one coming out because I want to watch them both back to back because I'm sad like that. Um, but yeah, and I definitely when they do come out, everybody should definitely um, um, go see those films, or yeah. read the book, or even better, read the book because the book is awesome. Yeah, apparently so. I've not read um, oh, books read yet. it, read it. <laughs> it's, it's it's a brilliant book. Yeah, you can do completely. It's I, yeah, it is long but you can really submerge yourself in it. It's really great. Totally. That That's the sort of feedback that I get from it because I, I watch a YouTuber, um, Danica, or that used, they used to be called Comic Book Girl 19, and they um, like rant about it all the time. You know, I think they did like a book club on it. Oh, I should have joined that, really. I should, that would have been a good one because I, I find it quite daunting, um, you know, with with things like that. And there's been the sort of the few films, hasn't there, um, that, that have... Um, that they've said like that they always say that it would be really good as a series so just because of the amount of hours and the amount of detail and everything like involved with it um but yeah i'm definitely going to check that out after um after the service um so we've got a um uh last question um so how is guy fawkes seen in your culture um if if at all and if he's not is there anyone that has a similar representation in your culture um i've heard of the figure of the pope also being burnt on this very evening yearly just as a bone a stamp there <laughs> bay after you so i think the whole thing of of fifth of, of november people have kind of forgotten or the meaning of it is completely it has lost i think when I was a child, I'm I'm old, I'm 50. So um when I was a child, there was more of a, a focus on on burning of the guy. I remember people uh creating guys, uh just for people who are watching who don't who aren't familiar with English culture. Um obviously, um as Tommy said, um uh Guy Fawkes, um try to promote the House Parliament. Um and then on this day what happens is that we build an effigy of him and then put him on the bonfire and burn him, uh, which is nice. Um 
but uh, what the tradition was for many years is that uh, children would make these guys, which were like effigies, and then they would go go collect money. So we would say penny for a guy. And that's kind of now been absorbed into like Halloween. And we don't see people doing it's very similar to Halloween of going door to door. Kids would sit on street corners with a guy and uh, as as people go past, ask for a penny for a guy. And then that's how they collect money. And uh, we don't see that so much. Um, and we don't see so much of, of images being burnt on the bonfire. We have the bonfire, we have the fireworks, but we don't have the effigies on. Sometimes they do. There's certain places around, around the country that still do. But now they generally have politicians or uh, popular culture figures that are on it. Uh, and the meaning of Guy Fawkes has kind of been lost. Uh, it's a very anti-Catholic kind of um, celebration. Um, which is also is very problematic uh, in many ways um and um um but i do th i do feel like the whole kind of people don't really understand what it's about as much as they used to and i know we're really short for time so um i'm gonna yield over to the rest of the panel uh, because it is quite a big topic um and it's a little bit of a, a kind of um a pet subject for me of messages being lost. I really like like that kind of whole philosophy of uh, things morphing through time and changing meaning. No, absolutely. And you know, it's um it's interesting because I I looked at sort of um there was quite a few anti-Semitism things linked with around this time of year, um, which I thought was, you know, it was scary concepts, you know. Um, but I think what I have always taken from the 5th of November, me personally, has um, been that we shouldn't be scared of our government. Um, and even though we burned the the guy, um, it was more of a, we lift him up sort of thing is, is a good thing, um, rather than it being, um, you know, we we burn him because he tried to blow up the, the Houses of Parliament. So it's really interesting that um, you know, but I, I should have explained as well. I do apologise. I should have explained where Guy Fawkes actually come from at the beginning. <laughs> um, so um, I'm not sure which one of you were first, but I'm going to go with um, Minister Richard Proctor, if you'd like to um, go ahead. Yeah, sure. So how is Guy Fawkes seen in my culture? Short answer, he's not. Um, he's mentioned maybe when we cover English history, back in like primary school, secondary school. And he's just taught as, um, you know, he, he's a figure of English history. He was one of a number of guys that tried to blow up Houses of Parliament uh, so that they could install an, Engl or, uh, not an English monarch, fucking, uh, what's the word, for a Catholic monarch. But he happened to be the patsy that was left uh, watching the gunpowder underneath. So the guards found him, captured him, tortured him. And the room he was held in at the Tower of London is now called the Guy Fawkes Room. That is the beginning, middle, and end of everything I learned about Guy Fawkes. Um, and then, of course, you know, I, everything that uh, Faye mentioned about Guy Fawkes Day and people uh, making fun. Oh, I also know that he he fought with the Spanish and went by Guido Fawkes as well. That's the only other thing I know about him. But um, is, is there an equivalent figure in Irish history that symbolizes rebellion? Well, I don't know, due to, uh, you know, 700 years of oppression from the English <laughs> government, I'd say we have more than one or two of them, but the first one that always jumps out at me 
really, really quickly, I got to mention Countess Constance Markovic. Got to mention her. Um, she was one of the one of the leaders of what was the 1916 Easter Rising, which was, you know, a big attempt to, you know, kick the English out of Ireland while they were distracted with World War One. Spoiler alert. It failed. They were all rounded up and executed, except for Constance Markovic, because she was a woman and she was so offended by this. She was like, no, execute me as well, you fucking cowards. Uh, went on to be elected to Houses of Parliament, refused to take her fucking seat. Uh, she was she was huge feminist icon, incredible, incredible woman, uh, rebel in Irish history. So that's my quick little sh- Sounds absolutely amazing. And um, funny enough, that's why I actually asked um, uh, yourself and Darren to be on, because um, obviously, even though you live in different countries now, you originate from what's made up of uh, the UK, maybe for not much, but, you know, Ireland, Scotland, Britain. And I, I wanted to see how that sort of played out. Um, and I, I really appreciate that answer. Um, we've not got long left, um, but Minister Darren, um, please go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll keep this quick. In Scotland, um, the 5th of November uh, is not Guy Fawkes Night. It's known more as Bonfire Night locally um, because you have an excuse to build a big fucking fire. Um, so usually uh, neighbourhoods will compete to build the tallest fire they possibly can. Um, I remember when I was growing up in my local area, we got a lot of pallets. I think someone put an old fridge on it as well. And we managed to get it up to something like 20 or 30 feet high um, before the local fire brigade came and told us to put it out. Someone threw some oil on it to get it going. Um, so it was just a big excuse to 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 build a big fire. Um, the penny for the guy thing has never been done in Scotland. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that um, in Scotland and in Ireland at Halloween, you don't go trick-or-treating, you go guising. And people assumed that that was, that was moved back from Guy Fawkes Night. It's not. Guising comes from the word disguise. And it's a tradition that started in like the 1500s, I believe, in Scotland and Ireland, where you would dress up in a costume relating to your local culture. For example, in Shetland, they were called skeelers. And um, you would go and perform a trick to get some sort of reward for it. And this was what guising was. So nothing to do with Guy Fawkes Night. Guy Fox Night in Scotland, fireworks, big fire, get drunk. That's literally all it means to us culturally. That sounds like a riot, um, a great fun, like so much fun. Um, and it's interesting, you know, to see where a different variation of that that word comes from. That's amazing. Um, so it looks like the hour um, for the service is up, guys. Um, I'd like to thank you all in the audience for spending this time to explore the symbols of rebellion uh, that have transcended time itself and what they mean to you personally. I'd like to finish by pausing for just a few moments to have a think about what we've spoken about today. <laughs>